Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Lisa. And I'm Shell. And you're listening to our 20th episode. Woo-woo! If this is your first time tuning in, we're two friends from Vancouver, BC, who try to shed some light on lesser-known Canadian true crime cases, solved and unsolved. But we also like to bring something new to some of Canada's well-known cases, too. Before we jump into this week's case, we want to give a shout out to our Apple Podcast Reviewer of the Week. This review is from Erica Com. It says, Amen. I love putting this podcast on when I'm driving home. Their reactions and questions are always what I'm thinking at the time. They're so interactive and it feels like you're just hanging out with them. I love this podcast. So sweet. Thank you. <laughs> So when I started reading about this week's case, I'm not going to lie, I was quick to make up my mind and opinions about what I thought happened. But as I continued my research, I ended up not so sure if I was such a know-it-all after all. This is a story that reminds us that even though it may look so obvious to an onlooker, there are still two sides to the story. And when one person is no longer alive to tell their side... We have to heavily rely on the evidence to speak for them. In August of 1982, a mysterious young man was spotted by some locals who lived on Little Bitterroot Lake in Montana. He appeared to be injured, soaking wet, and carried a duffel bag with him. A week after the man had passed through, a plane was discovered at the bottom of the lake that had ties to Vancouver, British Columbia, almost 1,000 kilometers northwest. But it wasn't until they found what was inside that would go on to make this man a fugitive and one of America's most wanted's longest mysteries. This is the case of Yarek Ambrosik. Take it away, girl! Little Bitterroot Lake is a small summer lake in Montana that stretches about seven kilometers in length. So just for perspective, this is about half the length of Osoyoos Lake in BC's interior. In late August of 1982, a woman and her daughter pulled up to their summer cabin on Little Bitterroot Lake when they noticed an unknown man standing on their deck. The mother got out of the car to go address the man and find out why he was there. He was wearing a white polo shirt, jeans, was well-kept, and didn't look like he was a lake person. He was polite but very vague when asked why he was there and said he had come from over the mountains. This didn't make sense to the mother and daughter because he wasn't dressed like a hiker and almost nobody ever came from that area. Okay, he's hiking in a polo shirt? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Where did you really come from? Who are you? Who are you? So the man left and walked off along the shore of the lake. It would later become known that this man had already encountered two young men along the lake the day before. The two boys recalled him being in pretty rough shape. He appeared quite injured and was soaking wet. The man asked the boys if they had any matches to light a fire because his lighter was broken. 
So as the nice boys they were, they hopped on their dirt bikes to the nearest store and got some for him. As they watched from a distance, the man started a little fire and began burning papers and what seemed to be maps and items of clothing from his duffel bag that was wrapped in a green garbage bag. Hmm. And that was the last that they saw of this man. Okay, highly suspicious. What is he burning? What kind of yeah. papers? Right? And why are you burning right. your clothes? Yeah. What are why? You doing? So a few days later, locals around the lake began noticing that the surface of the lake appeared to have an oily sheen to it. Some thought that it could be from a boat engine, but another local was a trained pilot, and he could tell that this was oil from a plane. So he called the deputies to report the suspicious oil in the water. When the deputies searched the area around the lake, they came across that fire pit that the man had made. They found a gust lock, wires, and a mic jack that appeared to be from a plane. And it just so happened that the sheriff was a trained pilot, and he knew that these pieces fit a Cessna 150 plane. They became suspicious that maybe there was a drug smuggle, and they ditched the plane in the lake. So searches of the lake began, and divers were sent down to search the waters. But some areas of the lake were as deep as 250 feet, which was far beyond the divers' capabilities, and they couldn't see to the bottom. After spending almost three weeks searching the water as their last-ditch effort, they decided to try this fancy new thing at the time called side-scanning sonar, which is what we know to be a fish finder. So the finder emits fan-shaped pulses into the water, and as it hits objects, the beam is reflected back to the emitter, which produces an image reflection onto a screen. And this is pretty much how ultrasound works. Yeah. So when they used this sonar device, they found exactly what they had been looking for. A two-seater Cessna 150 plane. Oh, so it's there. It's in they the lake. Got it. Yeah. So they sent a camera down to help guide hooks onto the plane to be able to pull it from the water. Once the plane had been towed to about 100 feet underwater, divers were able to go down and assess the plane. And when they got a closer look, they made a horrifying discovery. There was a young woman strapped into the passenger seat of the plane, deceased with her long hair trapped in the door and flowing in the water. Ugh. No. Divers draped a white sheet across the windshield to block onlookers from seeing inside the plane, but many still caught the image of the young woman's hair hanging through the door of the white plane. They searched the lake for the pilot, obviously. obviously where, is he, yep. where is the pilot? But they didn't have any luck. But after speaking with the locals and hearing their encounter with the mysterious man who was soaking wet... Right. Let's take a wild guess yeah. who the pilot might be. So this man was the pilot, and he was on the run, making him a fugitive. If you're the pilot of a plane that just fucking crashed, and a woman is dead inside at the bottom of the lake... Why aren't you reporting yes, it? Why aren't you saying this to anybody that you've just spoken to that right. live on the lake? And why are you standing on someone's porch? This makes me... Yeah, like, what were you looking weird. for? What were you doing? What are you doing? Are you trying to get into their place? Are you trying know. to see if they're home? Maybe. To, like, crash for a couple is of he, days? Is he, like, completely distraught from the plane crash and he's just not even thinking clearly? Right. Does he have a head injury? Because apparently he looked really injured. So, like, maybe he just wasn't 
he just wasn't all there. Right. Oh, it's so weird. One month after the plane crash, they were now trying to find out who this young woman was. Well, there was no identification found on the plane, so they had a disadvantage from the start. What if that's what he was burning? Her IDs? Her IDs. Like her passport or something. Yeah, maybe. <sighs> okay. The young woman's body was well-preserved and in excellent condition due to the freezing cold temperature of the lake. The searchers described her to look as though she was sleeping peacefully. She had a broken collarbone from her seatbelt and had cuts and bruising on the right side of her face and head where it was leaning against the door. She had no broken fingernails or bruised fingertips to suggest that she was fighting to undo her seatbelt. So this was really off for investigators. Like, had she been knocked out as the plane right, crashed and she the went down? Crashed. Like, she just didn't even wake like, up why to wouldn't be you, able. Why wouldn't you be struggling to get out? Right. If you, you are, knew that you were about to drown, like, you would rip your fingernails off trying to get oh, your seatbelt undone. 100%. So that's a question. Like, maybe she was just knocked out and she wasn't awake. What was the state of the seatbelt? Was it completely locked in still? Or was there, was there signs of a struggle, I wonder? So she had a seatbelt across her waist mm -hmm. and it was still fastened, but the actual seatbelt itself had been like twisted in like over. Okay. Like it was upside down almost. So maybe she was trying to get out. But I mean, she, I have to imagine she right. was. But, but maybe the, she just like couldn't find it because it yeah. was maybe the crash made it twist. Maybe it wasn't tight enough and it somehow twisted and she right. couldn't get it undone. But then the pilot... Was he trying to help? Was he trying to get her out? Or was he trying to kill her? So let's go back one month prior to the plane recovery. A search and rescue was well underway a few hundred kilometers northwest in the small lake town of Penticton, British Columbia. They were searching for a small Cessna 150 that had arrived in the afternoon on August 22, 1982. The plane had been rented by a 19-year-old man and an 18-year-old woman. They then departed the Penticton Airport in the early evening and were scheduled to arrive back in Vancouver that night. But their plane never arrived. Search and rescue were scouring the route that they had taken, looking for any signs of a crash, but with zero luck. Until a young man named Tom who happened to be a mutual friend of the missing couple, received a phone call. It was the pilot, Yorick Ambrosik. When Yorick moved to Vancouver at the age of 10, he would go by Jerry because his Polish name was hard for some people to pronounce. Tom and Yorick had grown up in their teenage years together because they were both from the Polish community in their neighborhood on the outskirts of Vancouver in Burnaby. They were so tight that they became known as Tom and Jerry. That's cute. Yeah. <laughs> In their senior year of high school, they became friends with a quiet but confident, beautiful girl named Diane Babcock. The trio became pretty close and would spend lots of time hanging out after school. But Jerry and Diane began seeing each other. Tom recalls their relationship as being pretty casual from the sounds of it, but because of this missing plane and they went on this trip, people started to think maybe that the couple had run away to be together, perhaps to elope. Okay. So now 
with the knowledge that this plane has gone missing from Penticton. It didn't arrive in Vancouver, but there's a Cessna found in the lake in Montana. Right. Are we thinking that this is the same plane? And Montana isn't on a route from Penticton to Vancouver. It's close. So... If it is the same plane, why did they go off route? Right. If they were were scheduled to come back to Vancouver, how did they end up in Montana? Right. Let's fast forward to when Jerry called Tom. Okay. So Jerry had hopped on a train and was calling Tom from a payphone in New York. And he tried to explain what happened and that the plane crashed. And he was letting him know where they could find the plane. So... This is confirming, yes, this was Diane and Yarick. So the plane was the one that went missing. In Montana. In Montana. <laughs> okay, and so now he's calling his friend. Telling him what happened. Telling him. Being like, hey, Diane's still at the bottom of the lake. So why is he calling his friend Tom and not alerting authorities to the fact that right. his girlfriend, his lover, is at the is, bottom of a lake? Right. What's going on? And he wanted them to find her. That's right. why he was telling him. He's he saying wanted she's them. still there. Yeah. So let me start by saying that Jerry was a trained pilot and Boy Scout. So he told Tom that he had planned to leave Vancouver for good on the Cessna 150 airplane. And he was running away. And he had intentionally planned to crash the plane in Little Bitterroot Lake as part of his plan to disappear. He told Tom that Diane was still in the plane at the bottom of the lake and he was calling him because he wanted her to be found. He said that he tried to get her out, but she was stuck in her seatbelt. Jerry said he ran from the scene because he was in shock and knew that they weren't going to believe that it was an accident and would charge him for murder. I mean, they might... That's a possibility. It is possible. I mean, to do a, a planned crash on a lake, it just seems risky to me. Oh, there so are, risky. There are other ways to disappear. Right? Like, like why, this seems so elaborate. Why I, a plane crash? Like, why a plane crash? And sure, you're a trained pilot at 19. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yes, uh, I'm a trained pilot. And what did you say? A Boy Scout? Yeah. Surviving in the wild. Right. I get it. Fine. You know how to fly a plane, but you don't have tons of experience under your belt. Like, have you ever landed a plane on on water? On water. I'm not surprised that something went wrong. I'm surprised that, I mean, maybe if she's in love and she's just like, yes, it's so romantic. Let's run away together. But as an 18-year-old going in a plane in a Cessna, oh my God, that like is my worst nightmare. I know. I'll never get on one. Yeah. And then crashing... Like a planned, controlled crash. Yeah, like you crash. know you're going to crash into a fucking lake. Yeah, and that you could die. Yes. Like she goes into this plane knowing that she could die. That it was That's, so dangerous. It seems far-fetched to me and very dramatic. Tom went to the local RCMP to report this phone call, and they even gave him a polygraph test to confirm his statements, and he passed. So while this was going on... Deputies in Montana were trying to figure out this unknown plane crash and who Jane Doe was. That's when Vancouver RCMP called the sheriff and informed him about Jerry and Diane, connecting the dots. So with permission, the RCMP tapped Tom's phone because Jerry said he was going to call back. And he did. When Tom begged Jerry to just come home... Jerry refused and said he's never coming back and they will never find him. Whoa. 
He said Diane was gone and that half of him had died too. He was alone. Jerry made a few more calls in the upcoming days to Tom through collect calls, but he would go under an alias, so if Tom's dad picked up, he would hang up. This guy's really trying to escape. Right? Like, why like, are you he's dodging not, everybody? He's on the run. Like, he's like, I'm out of here. This happened. You don't want them to trace your call. I think he's in the mindset that they think he's a murderer. Yes. And he needs to be on the run. But him running is making makes, it so much worse. Yeah, it makes him look so much more guilty. I mean, as a 19-year-old, maybe you would just jump to the absolute worst case scenario. And you're right. like, oh my god, I have to fucking run. I mean, you just saw your girlfriend die in front of you basically like left her at the bottom of a lake yeah and then went on with your life now they're looking for you yeah yeah it's just like a a vicious cycle like you just the more and more they're looking for you the more you're going to want to run so where is he do we know eventually these calls were traced back to east dallas in texas okay jerry had hitchhiked the whole way from new york all the way down to fucking dallas texas i was gonna say that's a far trek yeah And the plane was in Montana. So he took a train to New York from Montana. From Montana. And then hitchhiked all the way from New York down to Texas. Wow. All right. When he was asked why he rented the Cessna, Jerry said, quote, She was in love with me or something like that. It wasn't because we both wanted to run away from home. I wanted to get away. That's all. She just tagged along and said, like, can't live without you and shit like that. That's why she went along. Wait, what? So, yeah. First he's saying that half of him died. died. And now he's saying, oh, she just tagged along. I didn't really even want her to come along in the first place. Is he telling Tom this? Yes. Oh, my God. And this is all recorded. Right, because they're tapping his phone. Yeah. So that's strange because, yeah, he's saying half of me died. Now I'm on the run. I'm scared. I'm shaken up. But, oh, she was... I, I didn't even want her to come along, basically. Yeah. Like, it doesn't she make was just sense. tagging along with me because she mm-hmm. was in love with me or something. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not an elopement. Oh, That's okay. what he's saying. This is so weird. All right. Diane drained her savings account and brought $1,400 along with them. And Jerry brought $700, making up about $2,200. Okay. So this doesn't sound like a romantic elopement to me the way that he's describing it it kind of sounds like he just didn't care if she came or not and she tagged along but she drained her bank account exactly. so that so kind she, of gives some indication that she knew that they were going to be going away for yes. a while so at least we can say she probably was planning to go away with him and the plan to come back from penticton was not the plan yeah and they, they both were on the same page they weren't going to land in vancouver like she knew that right But regardless of how lonely he was, he still refused to come home. Investigators began wondering if maybe Diane had pushed Jerry into letting her come along, and perhaps the plane crash was planned with the two of them, but when Diane couldn't undo her seatbelt, he saw an opportunity and let it go down, and he just maybe didn't try to help her. Ugh, because he didn't really want her to come along anyways. I was like, well, Bye. Maybe. That's so terrible. According to the sheriff, they would have had at least a solid five minutes before the plane sunk. So did he let Diane sink with the plane? And if he was next to her in the plane, how long would it possibly take to just reach over and help her undo her seatbelt? 
Yeah. Like if you had five minutes, that's a long time to get a seatbelt undone. And that duffel bag that he was carrying just happened to be his bag with his things and all $2,200 inside. Oh. So you don't have time to undo her seatbelt, but you have enough time to grab all your belongings and the money. And her money. Yeah. It didn't look good. No, that looks really bad. Not good. How do you explain that? I mean, in my mind... Five minutes doesn't sound like a long time because if I imagine crashing in a plane on a lake, I'm freaking out, but Mm -hmm. adrenaline is going and so you're moving faster faster. and I'm just surprised that there's no cuts or like her fingers weren't bruised or damaged because of trying to get the seatbelt off. If I was in that situation and the seatbelt was stuck, I would literally be doing everything I could to get out. Exactly. Or even if it was too loose, like trying to wiggle out of it. Right. Like if you're suspended in water, your body is different, right? So you kind of floating essentially, Mm -hmm. and then you hold your breath and you just try to like move out. I mean, I'm I'm sure that it's way tougher Mm. than that, but But remember how it was twisted over? Right. There must've been some give. Yeah, on the seatbelt, if right. it twisted over like that in her lap. I mean, it's just so hard to know. I know, but like you can grab the top of the seat maybe and like start pulling yourself up to try right. to get yourself up and out. Like, right. I just feel like what happened to cause her to not have any signs of struggle yeah. with the seatbelt? Right. That's my biggest question. So Jerry would send one last farewell message to his family, telling them that he was okay. And that would be the last time that anyone would hear from Jerry. Oh. Off the grid. Like he disappears. Yep. Wow. 24 years later. Oh, shit. Out of the blue, in Plano, Texas, a woman contacted local police that she was dating a wanted Fugitive. Oh my god. His real name was Yarek Ambrosik. 24 years later. And he's still in Texas. Yeah. He didn't, he, leave. He didn't leave. Like, what did they not look in Texas? <laughs> like, so apparently, the traced calls that were coming from Texas, as a 19 year old guy, he's calling from payphones. Right. And this investigator was saying that why would the like they weren't going to invest in sending their investigator to go down there and find him based off of one trace call like what are the odds that he would come back to that payphone you're right you're finding a teenager that's on the run like he's like they're not going to blow their resources to send this investigator down there to find down him to because Texas. of one trace call up to a certain booth and yet he ends up staying there he fucking he stayed. stays and i guess Back then, too, this is the 80s, right? 1982. 1982. So there aren't cell phones. So he's calling from a payphone. It's much harder to trace. There's not like cell phone pings to tell you where someone exactly is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I can get that they probably thought he would continue on from there. Yeah. Like maybe he goes into Mexico. Maybe. Or just and disappears further. Like you could get across the border easily at that point. Oh, back then? Yeah. Yeah. Restrictions and security were way like lighter than they oh, are now. Of course, especially like he could have taken a flight into Europe or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like 9 11 hasn't happened yet. Nope. So literally, you could just hop on a flight and go. I know. So, this woman who reported Yarek, her name was Gina. She says that they had met online in the spring of 2006, and he went by the name of Michael Smith. 
Original name. Super original. He was an intelligent, wealthy entrepreneur in computer software, looking to settle down and wanting a family. He had two homes and drove a Viper and a Corvette. Oh. So, like, this guy is doing really well for himself. Buddy's making some cash. Yeah. Whoa. He said on his profile that he was 34 years old, which would make them around the same age. Mm. But she suspected that he looked a little bit older. Yeah, that doesn't, the math doesn't add up on that. (laughs) So he also wore a class ring that was from aerospace engineering. And it was from the same year that she would be graduating high school. So this was his university graduation ring from the same year that she graduated high school. So it just didn't add up. And when she called him out for it and kind of questioned him, he just smiled and let it go. Like didn't. Like he just it. didn't say anything. Yeah. But he probably looks like he just, he's in his 40s. Oh, yeah. He must. She even said, she's like, you know, there's a transition between your 30s <laughs> and your 40s. Like, it's just, it's a little bit more obvious. Like, yeah. you can get away with being in your 30s and still looking mm-hmm. like you're in your late 20s. Sure. But then there is like a kind of like a... There's a turning point. There's a, there's a shift between yeah. 30s and 40s. Aging is a natural thing, yeah. but, you know, it happens. And especially to someone who is the same age, like, I think if someone said to me, oh, yeah, I'm 29 too, and I was, like, looking at them and being like, wow, you really look like you're in your late 30s or something. Yeah. Like, you kind of have that feeling. Like, if he's saying he's the same age as her, like, even if he had said, oh, I'm just a few years older. Right. Might have even made his cover a bit more Believable. believable. Yeah, exactly. So after a little while, at some point, they were joking around about age. And and he said that he thought he looked really good for his age. Okay. And she was like, um, you actually look a lot older than your age. <laughs> and he was like kind of offended by that. Like, <laughs> so she called him out. Are you actually 34? And he said no. Oh, he admitted it. He eventually admitted that he was 43, not 34. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He just swap the numbers around. No big deal. Oh, yeah. Like, no one will notice that. Oh, my God. This then, guy. Right. And she just was kind of so thrown by this, even though there was, like, red flags. But she eventually was like, I mean, is your name even fucking Michael Smith? Like, what else <laughs> no. are you lying about? <laughs> oh, no. When Did she tell her? When she said that, he hung his head and basically just, like, shook his head. Like, no, it's it's not my real name. Oh, my God. Online dating. Oh, Gina. Here we go again. Gina, there's a lot of red flags. A lot of red flags. This is when you block and delete. Right? Block and delete. Block and delete. Yes. Like, that's it. So she was super pissed because he always prided himself on honesty on his online profile and he didn't want to play games and he was just all about the honesty. Here he is like preaching about how important being honest is. Yeah. And he was the most dishonest person yeah, he's a wanted fugitive. Fuck. Literally. She doesn't, she doesn't know she doesn't this yet. She doesn't know this, but literally, oh, you value honesty? Well, you've been on the run for 24 years. Mm-hmm. Literally like, evading police. Who are you to police? say that that's important to yeah. you? Like, fuck what off. the fuck? So the next day, Gina hopped on her computer at work and she Googled him. And that's when she realized that he was a wanted fugitive, but she didn't tell him that she knew. Because... She still wanted to go on this lavish business trip with him to Japan that he had invited her on. Oh. So 
perks. Part of her reason <laughs> for not telling him she knew was because she didn't know if he really was guilty. But like from the outside, like girl, you just wanted a free fucking trip to Japan. Yeah, but I mean, she looks up, Googles him essentially. Who goes on a trip with someone who's a wanted fugitive? To Japan. Like you're in a city or a country that you don't know the language that yeah. it's not your home country and you're with a wanted fugitive in a foreign country in a foreign country like that freaks me out the most and also you have to spend like a flight with him you don't know what he did you have no idea you have no idea essentially like he could have murdered his girlfriend exactly 24 years prior like you're you're just gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and Whoa. hop on that fucking plane that's and- a big risk gina yeah so this, risk. this wasn't even a short trip. It was like a month and a half. Oh, like a long a time. A long trip. Oh, geez. So well, while they were there in Japan, she was obsessed with taking pictures of the scenery. Mm-hmm, like she fair. claims that she's just a photo person. She's just glued to this camera. And at one point he kind of started to get a little upset with her because he felt like she was just so glued to this camera and wasn't even paying attention to him yeah well duh she's using you for a free fucking trip right she just wants to be like i'm in japan yeah i might never come here again yeah take all the photos i can (laughs) so he says this to her and she knows she denies it and whatnot and then along the way she starts talking about one of her ex-boyfriends and it just sounded like she was really still hung up on him and so Yarick kind of called her out on that and said something kind of that was a little bit of a jab and so she got super pissed at and him. that's yeah and then mm-hmm. that's when things just went south on the trip so i'm wondering at this point is she still calling him michael or is she calling him Yarick? <laughs> Like, if someone tells me that they, oh, this actually isn't my name, I'm not Michael, I'm actually Yarick, what do you call them? Are you calling him Yarick now? For a month and a half, they're in Japan together, what what are you calling him? And, like, does he want you to call him Michael? Because that's what he's gone by for 24 years now. Right. But you know his name isn't Michael? Yeah. Like, how... It's... (laughs) Oh my There's God. just so many weird things about this. So weird. <laughs> so anyways, when they get back from Japan, they broke up. Okay. One, oh, all right. <laughs> are we surprised? I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. So one month later, she reported him to police. Like, oh my God. Perfect fucking timing. Like, thanks for the trip. Bye. Yeah. Bye. And I'm going to report you. And oh yeah. By yeah. the way. All right. Well, like... He told her, he didn't have to tell her his real name. No, he didn't. I'm so shocked that he did. Did he want to get caught? I don't know. Maybe like subconsciously. Maybe. Yeah, maybe subconsciously. Hmm. So how did Yarick create this new life for himself without even having an American passport or citizenship? Oh, right. He's Polish. He's Canadian. Yeah. Right. 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 He's Canadian. Yeah. All you needed at the time was a birth certificate. So Jerry went to a cemetery and he found a tombstone that belonged to a young infant. And because this child was so young, there wouldn't be any records, including dental records, that could be traced back. So he took that name and applied for a new birth certificate. So Michael Smith was a a real name. Oh, a real person. It it was a real person. Yeah. Oh, man. That's kind of, I mean, for the time, that would have worked, too. Easily. There's not like the same technology no. that there is today. Not so, yeah. 
So, Making a fake identity would be way easier. Exactly. Huh. So as easy as that, he now had a birth certificate and was able to get a social insurance number, a driver's license, and an American passport. So as soon as he got his social insurance number, he got a job as a carpenter and completed his GED. And then he would go on to get a degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas in Arlington. So he was smart. And he ended up having his own business, which employed over 230 people. Oh, wow. Like, this guy is smart. Right. And, like, doing well. Kind of a model citizen. He's pretty savvy. Right. Yeah. And offered, I mean, he supplied jobs. Yeah. Built this business. Contributing. Yeah, probably paying taxes, you know. So we have an interview that Jerry had with an episode on Dateline. Oh. Here he is talking about how he went from aerospace engineering to changing over to a computer business. Okay. Like, why would you get a degree in aerospace engineering and then end up doing computers? Right, right. Ooh. When you start applying for uh, security clearances with aerospace Mm -hmm. uh, jobs, they're going to dig deep into your background, and I kind of knew that they would probably find them not Michael Smith, and so I kind of pretty much decided the time to switch into and get into computers. It's surprising to me then, like, he was pretty aware that he was living this new life. Well, you don't forget that you're on the run. Right, but I'm surprised that then he just admits all of this to I Gina. Know, like, you tried 20 years, you've spent 24 years building this new life and mm-hmm. erasing that part of your life. And then as soon as, like, this girl that you're dating asks you to tell you the truth like you're just gonna tell her and you cave like yeah, i just i don't understand yeah, that it's weird so when gina reported him to police they went to his house and placed him under arrest on the spot jerry was being charged with negligent homicide which means that someone died because of your reckless behavior mm. meaning that his plan to crash the plane into the lake was knowingly irresponsible but jerry refused to admit any guilt His story now was that they both wanted to leave together so that they could elope. Oh, so so now now he's he's going back. Going back to the elopement. Back to the elopement story. Okay. He said they were like madly in love, madly in love, and wanted to be together, just the two of them, and live off the grid. Part of the reason he said they needed to leave was because of his strict Polish background. It was considered a faux pas if you were going to be with a non-Polish, non-Catholic girl. And he made it seem like this was just a Romeo and Juliet story. Like the two of the families just forbid them from being together. And this was just their only option. They had to escape. They had to leave. The parents didn't approve. There's no way we can be together. They were going to split them up or whatever. Yeah. But both families would deny this, saying that if they wanted to be together, they could have. And they didn't need to elope. Hmm. You know, we just... Two crazy kids in love, and, and there's some barriers, I guess, in a relationship that we saw that, that's going to be difficult to overcome. We ended up watching this movie called Tarzan the Ape Man and also Apocalypse Now. And so we came up with this crazy plan to elope and, and live in a jungle, survive, survive off the land. That's nuts. It is nuts. If you think about it, it didn't now, seem nuts at the time. It did not. Where did you plan to end up? South America is what the goal was. Hitchhike down there or something. Hitchhike, taking buses, yeah. Back then, the borders were not as strict, so 
We already passed the Canadian-U.S. border by that time, so it's just a matter of the U.S.-Mexico border and, and onwards. Okay, so he's saying that they basically created this plan together. Yeah. That they wanted to escape Canada and go to South America. Yeah, like, we're going to build a fucking treehouse and live in the jungle. Wow. I mean, okay, if you think about it, 18, 19, it sounds pretty romantic. Yeah. Like, I can understand wanting, you know, you watch some movies and you want to live out some sort of movie fantasy life. Right. But to crash land a plane on water, hoping that goes well, and then just decide to make your way into South America, it seems like a crazy plan. It was so far-fetched. It's so far-fetched. So their plan wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment thing. It took them months to prepare. Oh, okay. So if they were going to do this properly, they needed to make a plan that would leave no trace or evidence that they were planning to leave forever. So they packed as little as possible to make it look like they were just doing a day trip to Penticton. They packed a few survival items such as a life raft, hair dye kits, a duffel bag with sleeping bags, a roll of toilet paper, and enough changes of clothes that would go undetected from their bedroom drawers. Diane also purposely left her toothbrush at home. They wanted to make it seem like they got into an accident and died because then their families would eventually just give up and stop looking. But everyone knows family never stops looking. Right. I mean, like, if they had found the plane empty, do you really think the family would have stopped looking for them? They were hoping that they wouldn't even find the plane. Oh, like yeah. it was, it was gonna just going to sink, gonna sink and disappear yeah. and there would be no trace behind. Mm. So they thought that this was legit just such a great idea. At first, they wanted to end up in Africa, but they realized that crossing the Atlantic Ocean wasn't feasible on, like, shipping tanks. Yeah, no. So they decided on South America. The plan was to land the plane in the lake near Montana with his emergency landing training that he had from pilot school. And according to Jerry's instructor, landing a Cessna on water would be doable as long as the nose of the plane was pointed upward towards the sky, as the tail of the plane would drag in the water, keeping it from flipping. Once landed, they would have about 10 to 30 minutes before the plane would completely sink, giving them plenty of time to unbuckle, gather their bags, and swim to shore, leaving the plane at the bottom of the lake. Then they were going to dye their hair to prevent being spotted and would hitchhike their way south where they would live happily ever after. So they thought they had this so planned out. What about the people that were living around the lake? They didn't hear a crash or anything? Well, he had cut the engine. Like, was that, was he that good? Like, I just feel like, okay, if he had actually done this in flight school, so he's you know, prepared for this landing on water. He cuts the engine. He's going slow. It's not really a crash, right? Like he's probably drifting slowly right. into the lake. It would be a big splash, apparently. Like right. people said that it wouldn't sound necessarily as big as you would think it would. Mm-hmm. It would just be like a big splash, especially when the engine was cut. Yeah. So you wouldn't hear that as it comes down. But... I still can't get over this fact of why she was stuck in the plane. I know. It's baffling. 
So on August 22, 1982, they rented the Cessna and flew to Penticton. They killed a few hours there because they needed to time out their arrival in Montana so that by the time that they were landing on the lake, it was dusk and it would prevent their plane from being spotted. So they wanted it to be dark. Mm -hmm. So once they boarded the plane again in the late afternoon, they took off and made it look like they were heading back to Vancouver. But once they were far enough away from the airport's air traffic radar, they turned around and headed southeast into America. They dropped their altitude low enough so that they wouldn't get detected on any radar, flying low through the mountainous canyons as they shared kisses and loving stares along the way. After a couple hours, they were now making perfect time with the sun setting and their arrival to a lake that they had decided was big enough to land on. Initially, they had decided on Flathead Lake, but when they approached, they noticed that it was just completely dotted with lights and houses all the way around. It was a really popular, busy lake. Okay. So they had to improvise and try to find another one that was nearby and maybe a little bit smaller and less frequented. Mm -hmm. And that's when they decided on Little Bitterroot Lake. It was now completely dark out and all they had was the moon reflecting on the lake. According to Jerry, they rolled down the side windows to allow the plane to sink better. Then they buckled Diane in with the seatbelt across her lap and the other across her body. They agreed that Jerry not buckle up because he had the plane's steering wheel to brace himself and because once they landed, he would have to move pretty quick to gather their things before the plane sunk. So they cut the engine as they approached the lake and began their descent. The plane was lined up perfectly, cutting through the cold Montana air as it flowed through the open windows of the plane. Here we go. As the plane made contact with the water, it was like hitting a concrete wall. The wheels of the plane jackknifed, launching the plane's nose forward and into the water, and it flipped the plane completely upside down on its back. Oh no. This was not what Jerry's instructor said would happen. Would happen, yep. So the next thing Jerry knew, he was in the water, in the dark, completely disoriented which way was up. He had been catapulted through the plane's windshield and into the freezing cold water. He kicked his way to the surface and all he could taste was blood. He shouted out for Diane and she yelled back, Yorick, I can't get my seatbelt undone. So he swam up to the capsized plane and climbed up the right wing. Water was pouring into the plane so fast because not only were the side windows open, but now the entire windshield was gone. It was blown out. Completely blown out. Oh, so by the time he climbed up, almost half the plane was already underwater. He had to fight against the pressure of the water rushing into the plane to get that door open. So he finally got it and he was pinning the door open with one hand as he reached in with the other to release Diane's seatbelt. But he couldn't feel her. That's when he realized he was on the wrong side oh, of the plane. my God. He was on the pilot's side. So making Diane on the other side of the plane completely out of reach. This, like, gives me anxiety. I know. Just hearing it. Like, oh, my the, God. That's so gutting. Ugh. So when the plane flipped upside down, it disoriented him which door was actually still above water and there was nothing Jerry could do. He couldn't get to Diane. And that's when the plane completely submerged 
all within 20 seconds from the moment of the crash. And in the blink of an eye, Diane was gone. Jerry tread water for a few minutes in the freezing cold water, hoping that she would have just gotten her seatbelt undone and swam to the surface. But she never did. He was in disbelief, but he was starting to lose feeling in his legs, so he began to swim to the shore. That's when he noticed a floating object in the water. It was one of their bags wrapped in plastic, so he grabbed it and doggy paddled to the shore. Oh my god. So Jerry and Diane were expecting this plane to float for like 10 to 30 minutes. Apparently when it sank in a matter of seconds, like he was like, what the fuck? Like right, this was like this not part of the plan. not part of the plan. And also I can imagine for Diane, when the plane flipped upside down, you are like, she would have been completely taken by surprise mm-hmm. and was also probably disoriented and didn't know which way is up or down. Mm-hmm. And then if the plane is sinking in seconds instead of minutes, you're trying to get your seatbelt on. Like, right. it just so, feels like that would be so much more chaotic than what they expected. Exactly. Being upside down. So you wouldn't have much give on your seatbelt then if that right. was the case. It would be so it would lock, tight. It would lock it in. It so tight. And mm-hmm. you can't see anything. It's fucking dark and you're in water and it's freezing cold and you're like, oh my God, this is, no, 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 no. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I just can't think about it. I nope. know. Nope. One thing that did cross my mind was that Jerry said he couldn't reach Diane because he was holding the door open with the other hand, but the windshield was completely shattered. So couldn't he have gone inside the plane, letting the door just close behind him, undo her seatbelt, and escape out the windshield? Yeah, that is a good thought. I didn't even think about that. It's a huge open space now. Yep. Maybe he just wasn't thinking. I know. It's hard to say what you would do. Like you've smashed through a windshield into the freezing cold water and you're in a complete panic. Everything's happening like so So fast. fast. You're bleeding. You're disoriented. Maybe he just didn't didn't think think about about it. I know. He didn't like even understand like what the hell happened and how he was even in the water. Mm -hmm. Jerry said when he got to the shore, he was just in absolute shock. Like, did that seriously just fucking happen? Like, how is Diane gone? Yeah. And he couldn't stop thinking about why she couldn't get her seatbelt undone. It wasn't a complicated seatbelt. Like, why couldn't she just get it undone? Mm -hmm. Like, this is what was going on over and over in his head. But it obviously was difficult. Mm -hmm. When he opened that bag that had emerged from the plane, he realized it was one of his bags that had his clothes and some food and was also the bag that just happened to have all their money in it. A complete fluke, according to him. Sheer luck. So he spent the night in the woods next to the lake and he would spend a few days, like almost up to a week around that lake. Just basically making a fire. Yeah, making a fire, just kind of like in disbelief and shock. Yeah. Living off the small amount of food crying for hours, heartbroken, and going over every single detail of that horrific accident, trying to rack his brain how this could have happened. The two of them should have already been hitchhiking their way to South America to pursue their dreams of living in the jungle, in a paradise with blue lagoons and their everlasting love. Jerry decided that he would continue their mission in honor of Diane. So, He used one of their hair dye kits that they packed and dyed his hair to avoid being spotted along the way. That's when he hopped on that train to New York and called Tom. Then he made his way to Texas. 
And then he legit just made it down to Mexico from there. He did. Oh, he did go to Mexico. He went to Mexico. He found himself on this secluded, quiet beach with hardly anyone around. But the novelty quickly wore off after he realized that he couldn't even climb a freaking palm tree to get a coconut. And he just wasn't cut out for it, even with all his Boy Scout experience. He wasn't meant for uh, living off the grid. No. But, I mean, perhaps it was also just because he didn't have Diane with him. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't the same without her. So he gathered his stuff and trekked his way back up to Dallas, Texas. As he was standing on a corner, an old beat-up car pulled up and a guy rolled down his window and asked if he needed a ride. So Jerry got in and they got talking about how Jerry was just on the road because he just lost his girlfriend in a tragic accident. The man sympathized with him and decided to take him to grab a bite to eat. After eating, he kindly offered that Jerry could crash at his place until he got on his feet. He agreed and stayed there for a couple weeks. It was this man who suggested that Jerry try taking a name from the cemetery to get his fake birth certificate. Whoa. But to be clear, like this guy didn't know Jerry was a fugitive from Canada. Yeah. He just thought that he had come across hard times and just needed to start a new life. Mm -hmm. That's when Jerry's new life began. He built himself a life in Texas as a successful entrepreneur. And that's where he meets Gina, which takes us back full circle. While Jerry is in prison, he reconnects with his family back in Burnaby, BC. His parents never moved in case Jerry had ever come back. Oh my god. They would still be there. How sad is that? And he didn't come back. He's coming back because he got fucking caught. Because he's caught and arrested and in jail now. This was a massive burden, apparently, lifted from Jerry's shoulders and a silver lining to be caught. Mm. In his eyes. To see his family yeah, again. Yeah, like he had always missed his parents and his younger sister and was actually quite grateful to be able to mend his relationship with them. They were extremely supportive throughout his many hearings and ordeals with his lawyers and all the financial struggles throughout the trials. Mm-hmm. While he was in jail, his bank took it upon themselves without a court order to just freeze his accounts, making it oh. basically impossible to pay his lawyers and maintain his payments for his house in Texas. So that was its own lawsuit on the side. He had a lawsuit against a guy who had his Corvette in the shop and had performed $7,000 worth of repairs on his Corvette and then just decided he wasn't going to give it back. Oh, wow. He tried to say that Jerry abandoned the car. So he had lawsuits all around him on top of this one with Diane. Oh, shit. Now that the bank has frozen... His assets. His assets. Like yes. He, how is he going to pay for all this? It right. was an absolute because, nightmare. Well, also, if he's committing identity theft, essentially, that, and that too. then they can legally probably freeze his accounts, even right. though he's made all of this money I know. legally. Legally. That's when he said, like, I earned that money. I contributed to the freaking country. I paid all my taxes. Jerry was transferred back to Montana to face his charges of negligent homicide. His family made several road trips to visit him, and they would talk on the phone frequently with their 15-minute time limits. Within the first couple months, he accrued a $2,000 bill just for the long-distance phone calls. Oh. So they were, like, really tight. Yeah, they were reconnecting. Totally. This whole time, Jerry has maintained his innocence throughout the whole 14 months that he was in jail, Mm -hmm. stating that... Diane was a willing participant who knew the plane landing was going to be dangerous. 
He said negligent homicide would be like getting into a car with someone expecting to get to point B safely without any risk, and then the driver just decides to go off the rails and crashes the car. So his point was that Diane got in that plane knowing full well that it was going to be a dangerous task landing in the lake. It had taken months for them to collect their supplies and plan their elopement. She was just as willing as he was. So to him, how does that make it negligence? Mm-hmm. Many people would ask, why did you guys have to stage a death? Why didn't you just go elope and be together? And run away. And like, just tell your parents, like, hey, we're leaving, peace. They were old enough. Exactly. They're adults. They can do that. And he would explain over and over that, quote, staging an accident meant minimum suffering and grief for our friends and families. Once declared missing and presumed dead, they would stop looking for us and could go on with their lives. It was as simple as that. Mm. Like the whole romantic idea of it. Yeah. Like they'll just forget about us because they think we're dead now. Mm. Oh my God. Jerry says that he feels remorseful and sorry even after all these years, but this doesn't mean that he feels guilty. Those were totally different things and something that was hard to explain to a jury. Jerry says the reason he was keeping in touch with Tom after the crash was because he needed to know himself if the investigators could figure out why Diane couldn't unbuckle her goddamn belt. He genuinely didn't understand why she couldn't do it. And did they figure it out? No. Oh my God, this is what I kept they still asking. Can't, they just never figured it out. All they said, it was just twisted inside out. <sighs> so during his arrest, he would also be charged for obtaining an illegal American passport and theft of the plane. But to him, he, he rented that fucking plane. It was not stolen. Right. Deal was, was you're supposed to bring it back you're to, to bring it back, Vancouver, yeah. not take it and crash it in a fucking lake in America. In so, Montana. Yeah. 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 So that was that was his side, but Jerry refused to plead guilty, but eventually he took a plea deal that was no contest to negligent homicide, which meant he accepted the punishments of a guilty plea without admitting any guilt. When people plead no contest instead of not guilty, the judge typically will give them less time. So after everything was said and done, Jerry was given two counts of 10-year suspended sentences that were concurrent which is basically parole. Oh. And minus the time that he already served, so that 14 months that he already served, basically meant that Jerry was a free man and he was deported back to Canada. Oh. It was finally done. So it was done. He kind of served his time. Yeah. So the reason why I had so many details of Jerry's accounts is because after Jerry was released, he wrote a book explaining his side of the story, including his entire ordeal while he was incarcerated. But people will still question, did he really try hard enough to save her? The sheriff in Montana doesn't think he did, stating that if that were the love of his life going down with the plane, you would have found him at the bottom of the lake with her because he wouldn't have given up fighting to free her. But Jerry's final words in his book state, just because I didn't act the way people expected, doesn't mean I was guilty of negligent homicide. Just because I didn't stay after the accident, was traumatized, in mental turmoil, and out of my mind after losing the one person I intended to spend the rest of my life with, doesn't give the Flathead County authorities the convenience of speculation and blame, especially when it's wrong. He says, we had a crazy plan, planned it for months, 
We eloped and unfortunately, a tragic accident happened and Diane ended up drowning. So what do you think? After everything was said and done, was this truly just a real life Romeo and Juliet story resulting in a tragic death? Or was it a crime of opportunity? This case is closed, but many still wonder, whose crime is it anyway? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We won't be back next week because we are going to take a little break for Canadian Thanksgiving and we will be back in two weeks with a brand new case and it's going to be a spooky one because it's close to Halloween. It's Spooktober! Spooktober! (laughs) It's like, wait, what? (laughs) Yes, I freaking love Halloween. I know. So we'll be back and until then, you can find us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. Bye! Toodles! <laughs> Perfect! Whoa! Nailed it! <laughs> we're you know gonna, what? Second time through? This is gonna be great! We're nailing yeah, it! We're gonna kill this one. <laughs>